You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. Taiwanese higher education occupies a liminal space in global academia in much the same way it does in geopolitics. Yes, it's a Chinese-speaking Confucian country, and so its national academic DNA carries with it a great deal of what is common to the rest of the region. At the same time, for obvious reasons, it's much less China-focused and has much closer relations with American and other non-Asian academic cultures than the average Asian system. The result is an educational culture which is unlike any other in the region. Taiwan is in some senses very representative of East Asian higher education. Like many countries, government focus for most of the past two decades has been on so-called excellence initiatives focused on research intensity and world-class university status. And like Japan and Korea, Taiwan faces a very significant demographic challenge, compounded by an unwillingness of governments to allow higher tuition fees. But in other ways, it's very different. Unlike many countries in the region, the government has been diligent in pushing responsibility for academic quality down to institutions themselves, rather than rely on governmental steering. And the Democratic Progressive Party, in power now for nearly a decade, has also been relentless in trying to focus institutional priorities on student outcomes and institutional social responsibility neither of which is common in East Asia. Today, my guest is Angela Yongchi Ho. She is a professor at National Qingqi University in Taipei, and for nearly two decades has been the foremost English language scholar of Taiwanese higher education. But her career has not been restricted to academia. For much of the past few years, she was also head of the Higher Education Evaluation and Accreditation Council of Taiwan, which is one of the most important bodies in the Taiwanese higher ed ecosystem. That makes her an ideal guide to the history and politics of higher education in Taiwan. I think you'll enjoy this interview. I was particularly intrigued by Angela's views on the politics of higher education in Taiwan and how the significant ideological differences on education between the DPP and the Kuomintang have shaped governmental policy over the last few years, in particular in the way that research excellence programs have morphed into something less competitive, less output-oriented, and more focused on students and communities. It's not a common story in Asia but it's an important one nonetheless. But enough from me, let's hear from Angela. Angela, let's talk a little bit about the history of higher education in Taiwan. The oldest and most prestigious university, the National Taiwan University, began its life as one of the Japanese imperial universities. And then the country gained a number of other institutions with very different histories and traditions when some mainland universities fled to the island in 1949. How did those two different academic cultures coexist with one another? And how did they set the pattern for the system over the last 70 years? Thank you so much for this question. First of all, I think I have to mention that the Taiwan is a very diverse society. We lot of immigrants uh, from mainland China, from Southeast Asia, so coming to Taiwan. So though, since that the 1949, that the new government actually started to uh, take over the powers of the whole system. But that is not that challenges for the Taiwanese people, or even what we say the university get used to, to the different system because they learn how to adapt to the different system, how to survive from the different government. Before that, the Japanese governments, actually, they already established a kind of system for higher ed, as you mentioned, that National Taiwan University. But after that, the 1949, Still in mainland China, the loud of the good university, prestigious university, not just the national university as well as the several private university has been reestablished. 
by the central government. Though that is still a little bit different culture between, but at the same time, as the books that I mentioned, not just the Japanese culture, the Chinese traditions, but at the same time, that the Taiwan society or the governments uh, mainly has been influenced by American that are superpowers that involve right. in not just the education, the very areas. So you can see that is quite interesting to see that the Taiwan system is a very interesting hybrid mode in com combinations of the Japanese cultures, the Chinese tradition, as well as American influence. And, and the American influence comes from many Taiwanese students going there for graduate school. And so they bring back those traditions with them. Was that what was going on in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, exactly. You are right. But before that, still the government, because they have very strong after they let the Kuomintang to the powers in Taiwan and then have very strong relationships between the American government. And through the education, this is the best way for them to collaborate with each other. Right. Yeah. Although, so at the same time, the Taiwanese students has been encouraged to go abroad and the first choice was options is America. So then they came back and then, of course, they bring a lot of the American higher education ideas back to the Taiwan. And then you can see through the institutional governance, through by the faculty developments of those kind of things. So even the curriculum, so exactly, it's been, we use the models of the American system. And even the QA system, the quality assurance system, also we use the American accreditation system. So let's talk about quality assurance, because I think one of the really interesting things about Taiwan, I think, is that like a lot of countries, there was a wave of new private universities in the 1980s and 1990s. But as you say, they were still pretty heavily regulated directly yeah. by the Kuomintang government in that period. And then as we go into the 1990s and 2000s, though, the country passes from a state-controlled process of quality assurance to a university-based process of quality assurance. That seems pretty rare in global higher education. Governments have a hard time giving up control. So how did that process of standing back, of retreating from government control, how did that happen? What were the preconditions to this shift and, and how successful was it? Honestly speaking, okay, quality, uh, quality assurance systems was established formally in 2005. So the end of the 1990, the end of the 2000, the university, particularly for the private universities, they uh, actually just requested the governments could have more and more academic freedom. And that's just one thing that the things that the government, though in one way, they may still to regulate the whole system, but they hope that the governments could have more autonomies to develop no matter it's the programs, the courses, or even to recruit the faculty members. The government tried to respond to this kind of request. And, but at the same time, they hope that seems you want to have more control or management by yourselves, but you have to develop your internal quality assurance system. So started that internally, you have to really ensure that how you really ensure the quality of the whole system or even think through your governance, things through your curriculum, things through your faculty development and et cetera. But you, as that the, the national accreditor here in Thai Education Evaluation Council of the Taiwan that I ever served before was established in 2005 under the University Revised Act. So it means at the same time, you were given more academic freedoms. You could really um, develop your own futures because at the time, though we tries to use, we tries to apply the American Carnegie classification system, you see the different types of universities where you fail. 
because the old universities don't want to be like the teaching type because Every, everybody wants to be R1. Yeah. yeah, they want to be the <laughs> R1. And because they think that they would give more funding if I'm the, the categorizer of tier two and then for the funding competitions, they, I will be the loser. So is this that why the government they think that through the QA system or even through the excellent initiative in the following we're going to talk about, they think that the university probably you will study to get your own futures your own resources and your strength or your potential development capacity. And then finally, you could recognize who you are. In your book about a shift in Taiwanese higher education around 2006 towards a golden age in the pursuit yeah. of excellence. And as you just said, obviously, the change in the quality assurance system was part of that. But there was also the introduction of ec of an excellence initiative, very similar to the ones started by countries like Japan and France and Germany at around the same time in order to chase world-class university status for <laughs> at least a few institutions. How well did that go? How much money was spent on these projects? And, and did they, in the end, do very much to vault Taiwanese universities into the global top class? Oh, thank you, Shimpong, for those questions. After the 2000s, in Asia, all the Asian governments, they try to realize that they have to invest a lot of resources into the higher education. To launch initiatives as one of the very, very popular options for most of the Asian government, including the Taiwan. At the time, the government, but in comparison, if it comes Comparing other Japanese or governments or the China governments and the Taiwan governments, it seems not so much invest in this system through the excellent initiatives. I generally that the issue that the that the amount that they invested in this initiative is U.S. dollars. I think is the three three hundred thirty around millions. So within the ten years, it means each year they will invest that around the three hundred thirty million. U.S. dollars in some selected university that the Taiwan higher as a total is that would be around 150 universities, but only selected universities will be able to have this kind of the qualification mm -hmm. to apply for this kind of competitive funding. You see only around 10 to 12 universities has been allocated this kind of funding through, of course, they still have to apply and then to show their strength and then to uh, tell the governments because they're the projects within uh, five years is around and then the second another five years. So you have to really tell the government how exactly within these five years, what kind of goal you're going, or going to achieve. Definitely research is wonderful, but, but I also have to tell the governments how much they're going to enhance the teaching quality. The government also encouraged them, particularly those selected university recipients of the excellent research, excellent recipients. They also have to demonstrate their outcomes of the internationalization. So it means how many international students you re recruit and then how you're going to recruit the foreign faculty members. For what I found within these 10 years, indeed, the numbers of the top 500 universities increased. At the time, the Taiwan University only around four or five in the global rankings. But after the 10 years, it means the two phases, the excellent initiatives is around eight to 10 or 12, depends on the different ranking system. It's still very challenging yeah. to be yeah. in the top 100. <laughs> yeah. So this is why we always ask the government, you should invest more. Yeah. So when you want to be moving more, 100 is probably that is, but you want to move in into the top 100. That is not enough. So now after 2016, you had two rounds of research 
oriented excellence programs, 20, yeah. 2005, 2010, 2011, yeah. 2016. And then this gets replaced by a new policy called the Sprout Project, Sustained Progress and the Rise of Universities in Taiwan. In, in your book, you call this an era of equity and university social responsibility. This seems like a big policy shift. Can you explain what the new plan was meant to tackle and has it achieved its aims in the years since 2016? Yeah, the year 2016 is really the year that makes the Taiwan had moving to the different directions. I right. have to say that due to is we have the new government and uh, the DPP, uh, DPP right. and Democratic Progressives parties that to the power and immediately they try to shift their focus from, you know, pursuing pursuit of the world-class universities into the students learning rights and then also the quality of the, the teachings. They hope that could be enhance more and then also to make sure the student input because around the 2015 or the 2014s still some of the paper or some of the scholars try to argue pursuing the world-class university is really good for the Taiwan higher ed and then how much benefit that the student could really uh, have maybe those university uh, the students at the selecting university or even a student at the teaching excellent initiative university they probably receive a very good teaching resources or even the resources. But how about breadth of the university? So I told you that based on these two initiatives, the 12, uh, 12 in research and the 30 in the teaching excellence, right? But how about rest of the 100 university? Mm -hmm. How about the students? Due to that, the DPPs, the new government's philosophy, the things that no matter which university study, you should receive the similar learning resources. So uh, that's why under the policy shift and then the funding allocated, not just unselected university, it means all the university at the time, 153 university, they all be able to apply this kind of funding. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Contact North a not-for-profit organization supporting Ontario residents to access education and training while staying in their communities. Contact North developed a series of free generative AI-enabled apps to support teaching and learning at Canadian post-secondary institutions. With these apps, learners and faculty and instructors can get instant, reliable study and instructional support in English or French. Visit apps.contactnorth.com .ca for more information. And we're back. Angela, let's talk about the politics of higher education in Taiwan. You just talked about how there was a big shift when the Kuomintang ceded power to the DPP after 2016. You go from, I guess, an ideology of excellence to an ideology of equity. Has that stayed the same over time? Has that been a, an enduring feature of Taiwanese politics? And for instance, how much did higher education and those two different views of higher education play out in the recent elections? I thank you so much for these questions. Uh, um, I, I was so pleased to answer these questions. Even yeah. now that you're in the heat, I'm going to give you the different answers. But as academics, I just tell you politics in Taiwan higher ed, honestly speaking. Politicians always try to promise that their voters, what they're going to do, and then they're going to share the resources equally, and et cetera. 
and then on the other hand, they still promise that they will do their best to enhance the quality of the system, will ensure that the students' employment, employability. In under this kind of scenario, it means that this is very that it, higher education is in one way, though internally means the university giving some autonomies to really design the program and etc. But for the institutional governance, it means that the governments usually will monitor all kinds of the the managements of within the, the university. They still strongly regulated by the government. So no matter which government actually in power, they always tries to. We couldn't say the controls, but it tries to have the greater influences in education because yeah. you see, this is a confessional society. Through educations, we will have power because okay. we, will, we will change your mind. So you see, before the presidential election, there is a um, lot of the arguments about why now the DPP, the governments, why they want, why they change our basic education content. Why they didn't want our new generation to read the histories of the Chinese governments or the history, historical developments over the 5,000 years. Or the, they try to reduce the content. So that is, this is a Chinese, our mind thinks that as soon as we, be, we want to maintain our power, the best way is to control the education, no matter which level, to the basic, to higher. One of the ways the government can control institutions, of course, is through finances. And yeah. one thing that struck me reading your book was the extent to which tuition fees have ceased to be a major source of, of university yeah. income in the sense that institutional tuition fee changes have to be approved by the ministry. And mm -hmm. I think on average over the last 15 or 20 years, only three or four institutions a year have been able to get these <laughs> fee increases. So this must make university financing very precarious. How have universities handled this situation? So that issue has been 20, almost 20 years, right? And that's why I told you that the politics always play the very significant factors in this issue. So this is why no matter the public university or even the private university, I mean, we rely on the tuitions more than the public university. So why over the years, you can see now only few universities has been pushed to raise their tuition fee. That is one thing. But for... The private university actually, I think, is to face more uh, serious problems. So you could see more for those long history and more with a prestigious private university. Now, since 10 years ago, they started to actually focus on the donations and then they tries to develop their relationship with that line of alumni, hope that they could give more and more different resources in order to inject into that university's resources. But for the public university at the same time, they face the same issues. They try to collaborate with the industry. Take a Taiwan National University. They, you see the Taiwans, we have a lot of the IT big companies. So they try to work with those big companies and then the, the, they see that if they could actually share their resources, one way is maybe the students were given more and more opportunities to have the internships. But on the other hand, they also hope that through this kind of industry collaborations with those big IT company that could also could fill that gap, actually, they, they didn't have. Because you know that each year that all electricity, the water, all things are raised, even that the, the staff of the salary raised, but the tuition is still at the same rate. So this is very hard for the most of the university to do. That will be the two way. Taiwan is one of a number of Asian countries 
<laughs> which has experienced a long decline in the birth rate. University So youth populations and therefore university student populations are starting to decline. When I was reading, doing some background reading for this interview, I saw an estimate from 20, from just three years ago that 50 universities yeah. might need to close by 2025 in order to keep the system healthy. But at the same time, you have a, you still have a growing high tech industry and it needs yeah. masters and PhD level graduates in order to maintain the country's advanced mm -hmm. manufacturing. So you've got demand for higher education pulling in two directions at once. How do you think the system will adapt to this continuing demographic decline? I don't know if I would give you the good answers, but at this moment, what did the government try to do this, try encourage that those, no matter the either universities or even some teaching oriented universities to attract the students from the ASEAN country, particularly from the India. So you could see like the Tsinghua University, if they did get their engineering faculties or even computer science faculty at the PhD level, probably 80% of them are, are India students. <laughs> yeah. So they see that, yeah, this, yeah, so that is because we, at this moment, we cannot have the Chinese students. So that's why. And then the government encouraged those top research universities, but you could that, maybe you could track that the best universe, best students from the India, we've been sort of Malaysia, from the Thailand and et cetera. But for those, the, the pride in, in the doula area, maybe then they face more and more challenges. So you could see that in, yeah, in the long runs, probably is more than up to 50 universities were forced to close in the future. So that is bad. Though that the universities were very hard to attract other international students, but how exactly is they were really help that the talents industry or even the national developments? I think they still take times to observe if they could become our human resources in the future because the government have very talents. Governments have very strict immigrations policy. Right. So it means that we would try you to come into Taiwan to study, get your degrees, but we do not welcome you to stay after your graduation. So maybe the new governments, have, they are more wise enough <laughs> to oh, get hope. better solutions for that. <laughs> so one thing that you didn't touch on in your book, but I know will be of interest to some of our North American listeners, is how Taiwan has tried to increase participation amongst its indigenous peoples. So there's a College of Indigenous Studies at National Donghua University, mm -hmm. and there's been experiments with set-asides of student spots, quotas of spots at, at particular institutions. What else can you tell us about attempts to raise participation rates of Indigenous peoples? It seems to 2000s and then the Indigenous peoples' right, no matter all kinds of rights and participations in the social developments or even the national development and then the educational setting or there has been protectives under that the government's indigenous law because they hope that they could be given the same opportunities to participate in that national developments. So sometimes we could say that it's like a, the Americans' authority action. <laughs> yeah, so that one thing that there was set up certain kinds of the status quo, the student quotas for them to enroll so that additionally. And on the other hand, that the university has been encouraged to provide certain kinds of the programs or even like in law. A lot of indigenous peoples, they probably need more and more of those kind of the knowledge in order to protect their own rights, et cetera, that the law, the business, or even in the education. So if you look at the Donghai University, they have the teacher's education particulars for the, the indigenous people. They hope that they could go back to a hometown and then uh, being a teacher and to teach the next generations. 
So the government through from the policy and just encouraging university to do and then also they tries to save a certain kind of the quotas for those indigenous people, encourage them they could continue to uh, participate in all kinds of the national of the areas of the national development. But right. at the same time, the government, they also provide a lot of the scholarship programs for those indigenous people and then hope that uh, they won't be worried about some financial issues because some families probably cannot really afford it. So a scholarship program or even through any kinds of the application. Because the university will have the different kind, no matter study abroad programs or even any kind of scholarships, internship programs. The indigenous people always could be one of our first priority. Got it. Yeah. Internally, affirmative actions. <laughs> what is it that makes you optimistic about higher education in Taiwan? If we were to come back, if we were to do this interview again 20 years from now, yeah. what do you think will be the point that people will remember about Taiwan education? What will be the greatest point of success? And what will people look back to for the 2020s and say, boy, those were the policies we followed that, that made the difference? When I look at this question, I try to reveal what exactly is that being gone through over the 20 years. And I think the one thing that I, I feel quite strongly is about academic freedom. Though uh, the government actually, in terms of administration, definitely the government set a lot of regulations for that the university have to follow and et cetera. But for what exactly is what we want, the research you want to do, or what exactly you want to teach, is we fully being respected by the university. And then the university won't involve what intervenes, what exactly is that, what kind of the research, or even what exactly is that the content that we're going to teach in, in, in the classroom. So I think this is, we different from the other Chinese society. Probably there has more restrictions. But in Taiwan, I think, honestly speaking, I have to say that is really good values because we won't, our minds won't be limited to some area. We could do whatever we have. Though we don't know if you, your research will, will be values by the government or not, but they won't restrict you. I think this is one of the things. And another thing is, I think over the years between, it means what I call the golden era, and then we had the more chances to work with the different partners in the different countries. So I think that is also in the university or the faculty members and encourage that you should not only stay within the island. You have to work with the different countries, the different university, and then to see if anything's innovators could be, could be do in, in, within your university through the research or even instead the teaching. So this what I quite, I'm so grateful that I could have so many friends around the whole world, including you, right? And another one is we really cared about the students, though it's from my perspectives and uh, we hope that they just our own goods, we hope that what is that we have could be continued. In, come, in, in Chinese society, the Taiwanese professors, I think they care students quite more. Yeah, we're happy to, to share what we have with the students, and we hope that no matter what exactly we do, we are very student-centered. I think that would be the number three that I think that the values that I have over the past 20 years that I have. And of course, finally, the HE ACNA. The independent accreditor, <laughs> yeah, we're professional independent accreditor, because we try to let the university understand that the accountability is still one of their responsibility. They have to demonstrate what is that they've done to the 
Taiwan Society. Angela, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for your invitation. And it just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufik, and you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. We'll be taking next week off, but tune in March 7th when our guest will be Courtney Brown, Vice President of Impact and Planning at Higher Education Super Donor, the Lumina Foundation. And we'll be talking about what comes next for the organization after the year 2025 and the end of its two-decade push to raise American higher education attainment rates to 60%. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.